You know, it's interesting we've been talking about this morning, uh, the confidence we can have coming before God. And yet I open my sermon with the question, why did the hare lose the race? Now, hare, you know, that's a rabbit, okay? Why did the hare lose the race? Was he not fast enough? Was he out of condition? Did he have a blowout on his sneaker? No, he was overconfident. He wasn't concerned at all. There was no way a tortoise could beat a hare. So he stopped along the way to catch 30 winks, to nibble the grass, to smell the flowers, to do whatever he felt like doing. And he lost the race. I hope we're still telling that story to our kids and grandkids. Do we ever get like the hare? Do we ever get overconfident? Well, of course we do. And it it causes most of our accidents and, and disappointments. Most of the time, fortunately, the consequences aren't too serious. You know, a, a skinned knee, a bump, a bruise, a broken rib or two or five. <laughs> Occasionally, however, they can be fatal. And even worse, overconfidence in the area of our relationship with the Lord can have eternal consequences. I think Paul made that rather clear in the final words of chapter 9. He said, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly... After I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Disqualified from what? Because of their theological presuppositions, some refuse to acknowledge what seems to be obvious here. Paul was concerned about the possibility of losing eternal life. If that was a cause of concern for an apostle, surely we ought to give it serious thought as well. And in our text for today, Paul directs us to do just that, to take heed of our position before God. And he does so by warning us about the danger of becoming overconfident. He begins with a brief history lesson that illustrates the danger we face, the same way the psalmist reflected on that in Psalm 78. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not well pleased. 
for they were laid low in the wilderness. Paul begins by reminding us of what the Israelites shared together, noting first that they were all under the cloud. Now, that's not a reference to the cloud that was always over the head of Joe. I looked online and Al Cap said you pronounce that by going. Well, you may not know who he was, but he was a character that Al Cap, the creator of Little Abner, had. And and wherever he went, there was this cloud over him. You remember that? Anybody remember that? Oh, okay, all right, all right, so I understand. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about here, okay? He's talking about the Shekinah presence of God, the cloud that went before the children of Israel by day, and the pillar of fire that led them by night. All of the Israelites were under that cloud, that magnificent symbol of God's presence and leading, all were guided on their long journey by that cloud. They were under the guiding hand of God and a visible, miraculous sign of His leading. And they all passed through the sea together. They all experienced the deliverance of the Lord when He caused the Red Sea to part and enabled them to escape from the Egyptians on dry ground. Every one of them had seen how God is able to protect and deliver those who trust Him. They had all shared wonderful experiences of deliverance. In fact, Paul said, Through their shared experiences, they had been, in a sense, baptized into Moses. They had been spiritually connected to the great lawgiver. Together with him, they had experienced the Lord's direction and deliverance. Even more, they had been sustained by him. They all received the manna from heaven, that miraculous food that appeared in the wilderness. Every morning, they all drank the same spiritual drink twice. God provided water from a rock for them. And that rock, according to Paul, was a symbol of the presence of Christ, who was with them, providing for their needs wherever they went. So the Israelites had all seen God's presence and had shared in His guidance and deliverance and sustenance. They had even, in a sense, shared in the pre-incarnate Christ. They'd been abundantly blessed by God. However, Paul adds, God was not pleased with most of them. And they were laid low in the wilderness. Not pleased with most of them. Now that is quite an understatement. Over 600,000 men of fighting age, plus women and children, 
left Egypt. Yet only two men who began the journey, Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to enter the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness. The rest were literally laid low in the wilderness. Why? Because God wasn't pleased with them. It wasn't enough to be identified with God's people and to share some religious experiences with God's people. That alone did not assure God's good pleasure. Apparently they thought it would. They were confident it would. But it didn't. And that has real application in the church today. There are a lot of people who assume because they are associated with God's people and have shared in some religious experiences with them that their ticket to heaven is secure. They were baptized into a church and they shared religious experiences there. Perhaps they even found deliverance from sin and the bondage of sin there. And they shared in spiritual food that was offered there. But then something happened. One day they found their experiences were all past tense. And the relationship with the Lord had changed. No doubt the Israelites stood in awe of God the first time He appeared in the pillar of fire to lead them. No doubt they rejoiced from the bottom of their hearts when He divided the water for them and saved them from the Egyptians. I even imagine they loved the manna that He sent at first and are extremely glad and grateful to get it. But then something happened. They found themselves like so many today who once had very real experiences with the Lord and His people, but now feel abandoned in the wilderness. Why? What happened? I think they became overconfident. When they first came to the Lord... They treasured the relationship with Him and longed to know and to do only those things that pleased Him. But as they grew more and more familiar with God, their relationship changed. And they even began to lose respect for Him. Now that... That sounds shocking. It's hard to believe that someone could ever lose respect for the Lord through familiarity. But it's a very real possibility. If a state trooper moved next door, you'd probably be on guard, watching everything you did, respecting every letter of the law. But after getting to know him on a personal level and becoming good friends with him, 
you'd probably stop being quite so concerned. You wouldn't worry much about him giving you a ticket for rolling through the stop sign on the corner or going just a few miles an hour over the limit. You'd think, hey, we're neighbors. We're friends. No problem. In essence, you would lose respect for his position over you And you'd begin to presume on your relationship. You really wouldn't be too concerned about his role as a police officer. And then, if you became overconfident, if you crossed a line he could not ignore, you would find yourself being laid low by a neighbor who had to do his duty. Well, that can happen in our relationship with God. We can begin to presume too much, thinking we are home free because we did the right things, joined the right church, and had the right experiences. We become overconfident and quit worrying about pleasing Him. Well, that spells trouble. And it can lead to some pretty frightening results. It did for the Israelites. Let's read on. Now, these things happen as an example for us. That we should not crave evil things as they also crave. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What did the Israelites do? Well, once they no longer felt there was an overriding need to please God, They started pleasing themselves. And since evil things look like so much fun, they began craving evil things. They figured, why not? As long as their future was secure with God, why not go ahead and do what they wanted to do? And what they wanted to do was have a good time. So while Moses was on the mountain receiving the law, they decided to party. And since they knew God wouldn't approve of the things they wanted to do at the party, they created another God, a God of their own. They made a golden calf. They made their own eat, drink, and be merry kind of God. Now, they knew it wasn't really a God. 
They knew that the golden calf hadn't led them out of Egypt, but they could pretend that it had. That way they could still be religious and religiously justify their behavior. The calf wanted them to celebrate, to have a good time. And besides, God would understand. He'd look the other way, right? Wrong. The Levites were ordered to kill 3,000 men who were in on the plans for the party. Obviously, God wasn't pleased with them. But the lesson didn't stick. It wasn't long before they started noticing the beautiful women who lived in the countries through which they passed. And when the women tempted them, and since God had led them there, they decided God would overlook a little indiscretion on their part. After all, they were only human. He'd understand, right? Wrong. Twenty-three thousand died in the plague in one day as a result of their sin. They had assumed too much. Then they got impatient with the Lord. Things weren't going as they thought they should, so they began blaming God for their condition, even accusing Him of leading them into the wilderness to slay them. They tried the patience of God by accusing Him of evil. And they refused to follow His direction. They even tried to tell God what to do, effectively putting themselves above Him. So He sent snakes into the camp to bite them and force them to look to Him for deliverance. He did not take lightly their arrogance. Then they grumbled about God's choice for leadership. Korah and some others decided that they were just as qualified as Moses to lead the people and led a rebellion. It came to a halt when the ground opened up and swallowed 250 of the ringleaders. Even then the people grumbled, accusing Moses of killing them. They had no fear of God or his spokesman. So God wiped out another 14,700 with the plague. Why is Paul telling us all this? So we'll learn from their mistakes. That's why. They had assumed the relationship with God was guaranteed, irrevocable, no matter what they did. But that wasn't true. And their overconfidence resulted in their destruction. Paul wants us to understand that we can never come to the place where we stop being concerned about what pleases our Lord. Because if we do, He ceases to be our Lord. 
We can't create a false image of God as a grandfather who smiles and says, kids will be kids and lets us do anything we want. We can't throw morality to the wind and assume God will close His eyes to our sin because of our past experience with Him or because we are members of a church. We can't point a finger at God and accuse Him of the evil we bring upon ourselves and expect Him to sit back and take it on the chin. We can't strike out on our own, cutting ourselves off from the church and rebelling against those God has placed in spiritual authority over us and expect God to still consider us a part of His family. Paul says, take Heed. Don't get so sure of yourself that you fall. Don't get too cocky about your relationship with God. Don't get overconfident. Now, that does not mean that we can have no confidence in God. He's promised to care for us and protect us. And keep us if we'll trust Him and let Him lead us. And that is the cure for overconfidence. Verses 13 and 14. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Trust Him. Trust Him. God is faithful. Don't set up gods of your own that you can control. Give yourself to the only God who can control what happens to you. And then have confidence in God's care and direction in your life. When temptations and testings come... Don't think he's picking on you, being unfair, or that he's lost control. He knows what you need and what you can handle. And while temptations don't come from him, he will control them for you. He will keep them, your temptations, at a limit, your limit. Or below, I know some say, boy, I wish he knew my limit wasn't quite that high. But he knows you. We have a promise. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. Now, he will allow temptations and trials to stretch us, to mature us, But he'll keep them under control. He's promised that. And we can count on him. 
He will even provide a way out of tempting situations for us if we will look for them and take them. He's promised to do that too. So trusting Him to save us and trusting Him to keep us in a right relationship with Himself by making it possible for us to obey Him and please Him, that, my friend, is the cure for overconfidence. We trust Him and we obey Him. We have faith in God and we do the things that please Him. Things that demonstrate our confidence in Him and His provision. That's the only way to be happy in Jesus. In fact, that's the only way to be in Jesus, period. Because of His grace, we can rest secure in Him, but we don't want to be overconfident. We can be secure in the Lord if we trust Him. And by the power He gives and the escape routes He provides, obey Him. We can never get to the place where we just say, ah, I'm cool. He'll forgive me. It doesn't matter. He loves me. I did the right things. I joined the church. I served as an elder. I taught Sunday school for 20 years. I don't really have to worry about pleasing God anymore. Wrong. If we stop pleasing the Lord, He stops being our Lord. Okay? Do we get that? We've got to trust Him. We've got to obey Him. Do you trust Him? Are you willing to let Him make possible? Now, this is of grace. It's not of works. It's of grace because He's the one who makes it possible for us to obey Him. Okay? We're not saying we save ourselves or keep ourselves saved. No. We say we trust Him to save us and we trust Him to keep us saved by doing what He's asked us to do and has empowered us to do. If we forget that, we'll find ourselves laid low in the wilderness. And it's happened. And it happened. But you know, there's one little thing I, I, I just thought of here. Those that were laid low in the wilderness, they were buried or walked away from or whatever. That was the end. By the grace of God, today, even if we have become overconfident at some point in our life, we stopped trusting, we stopped obeying, we've set up our own gods and we've started doing our own thing, even even if we are then 
laid low, there's still hope for us. Even if we spiritually die, we can come back to life through Christ. If we'll acknowledge our sin, he's faithful to forgive us our sin and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Great promise John gives us in his first letter. But there's a warning. Don't presume. Don't assume, well, if things go bad, I'll just come back. And he'll say, cool. Because you may not want to come back. You may stray so far that you don't care. That's when you lose it all. That, my friend, is the unpardonable sin. I pray that we live lives of confidence, filled with grace and assurance, Yet, we never get overconfident and presumptuous and arrogant and assume we've got it made because of something in our past that doesn't work that way. You've got to trust Him. You've got to obey Him. You've got to do it now. Let's stand. With the Lord, 